speak about an English poet, John Keats, and one of his poems, one of his important and rather beautiful poems, Ode to a Nightingale. And I feel both the person of Keats and the poetry of Keats is something which very much relates to spiritual awareness, to a perceptive understanding of life and its communication through perhaps the richest or one of the richest forms of language, namely the poem. And part of the reason that I have chosen uh, this particular poem and poet is because of a personal long-standing love and affection for Keats, an acknowledgement of a short and unusual life, and for what he endeavours to render and communicate through the power of the word, through the power of, of language. And in order to understand this poem, Ode to a Nightingale, it rather has to be understood in the light of the poet. And recently, I was in Italy, in Rome, and I had there the opportunity to visit the, the Spanish steppes, the Piazza de Spagna, where Keats died. And Keats himself was born just outside London in um, October 1795. And he died in Rome in a small room in the, on the edge or besides the Spanish steps in 1821, when he was 25 years old. And in making this visit to his room, something which, in a way, having this long-standing affection, I've looked forward to for, for quite some time. And in going, going there, I went with a, a friend, a Joya, and one goes up a flight of stairs, and when one come, first comes to the one small room, I would imagine it would be probably about 10 feet by 10 feet, which is now has been converted into a small library, photo stats of some of his letters, some of the originally published books and so forth. And where people who have a love of Keats um, uh, visit. And then, in, and then in the next room, there's a very, a very small room, and it is in this room that Keats, who suffered from tuberculosis, uh, died at this very young age. And the poem communicates very, very sensitively uh, human suffering and all that can be featured and highlighted in the course of suffering and something which is transcendent to it. And to get a, something of a sense for that, it's perhaps to get a sense of, of Keats himself.
Keats was born, as I mentioned, out just outside London and was one of five children. When he was nine years old, his mother, his, sorry, when he was nine years old, his father died. And a few years later, also from tuberculosis, his mother died when he was 15 years of age. And upon leaving school, Keats had been accepted into Guy's Hospital, one of the major London hospitals, to uh, um, train to work or to assist surgeons. Called his, his job was called to be an apothecary. And basically the responsibility for these 13, 14-year-old uh, boys was to witness the operations and then afterwards the patient would have the responsibility of taking care of the pa patient and particularly bandaging the patient up. And one rather has to, we rather have to cast our mind's eye back to what hospitals were like in London, much of it desperately poor, working in a hospital without anaesthetic, with very little, if any, concept of hygiene, no concept of infectious diseases being easily, or very little, easily transmitted in appalling working conditions. And for this, he, and as other young men were at that time, subjected to five years from the age of about 14 to 19 to train to be an apothecary and to qualify in that particular role. So one can give some sense both of the suffering of losing his mother and his father, of working in such conditions over the years, the kind of impact upon his life experience and his whole view and perceptions of life, having to witness this appalling suffering and some of it, of course, right there in the operating theatre. Particularly, as he referred to, hard enough when seeing grown men screaming and suffering with the pain, but when it was actually having to witness amputations with regard to children. So all of this is in Keats' formative years. Out of these, these impressions registering in this young and bright bright mind and a, an unusually sensitive mind, he began in his late teens to write poetry. Finding time to, to move away from the city, to be by himself and to write. In this period of time, the suffering which, as it were, dogged him and, and was so much an emphasis in, in his life was such that one of his brothers, Tom also got this tuberculosis. And in the last months, Keats, John Keats, the brother, decide, felt out of his love for the brother to take care of, of his brother who was so obviously dying. And they actually went to live not so far from here in a small terraced house in Devon, in, in Tainmouth, which is... 10 or 15 miles from here, place by the sea. And it's 
almost as sure that in this time, this tubercular bacilli, the actual germ which gets transmitted often from phlegm and from you know, normal kind of contact which, which can take place, it seems it then went to Keats himself. During this, during this period of time, he nursed his brother until uh, his brother's death, and then a few months later, out of his experiences, both in the hospital and, of course, with the witnessing and caring for his brother, Keats wrote this poem, this ode to a nightingale. And this was in the time before this, this, this illness had actually taken a full grip and hold upon himself. Keats was in London, his time now, he's about 22 or 23 years old. He was in London and he had to travel from the centre of London by stagecoach, and the cheapest mode of uh, travelling, from the centre of London through to Hampstead, which is now, of course, a very fashionable area to live in, and, in, and it was on a bitterly cold February night. The bacilli, the, the germ, had already taken root in this particular person. And when I'm thinking of this, I'm talking about this, you know, today in, uh, in India, it is said that some 8% of the population get tuberculosis. And Keats travelled from the centre on this stagecoach through to a, a house in uh, Hampstead on a February uh, night, and while there, staying with a, a man named Brown, uh, a friend of his, he began coughing during the night. And he turned to his friend Brown and, and, sa and said to him, please bring me light a candle. And his friend lit the candle, brought the candle over to John Keats. Keats looked, and with the light of the flame, looked at the handkerchief and saw there were spots of blood in the handkerchief. And his, and his words were, on seeing this, was, this, these drops of blood is my death warrant. He knew that once that had begun, then there was no cure for this, that there was, it was simply a process, a matter of time. As the time went by, it went from one drop of blood to communicate what this disease is like, which takes a hold. That, that as the time went by, there would be times when he was coughing up two cupfuls, three cupfuls of blood. Because the lung itself gets a puncture in it. There's a hole in the lung, and then there's blood pours through the lung, and one is not only in danger, of course, of the lung actually collapsing, but also actually choking to death. This is... This is... This is typical you know, of the kind of process which takes place with regard to the disease of tuberculosis, right through to the end. And, and the thing with it was, too, that people didn't realize how 
easily and very quickly would, it would actually get transmitted. During this period, during this period of time of, of having to work with and deal with this, he had a friend who's become something of a household name in uh, terms of the lives of the poets. Uh, friend, a, a young woman friend who he met when she was uh, 18 years old, named Fanny Braun. And during the, peri during the period of time of Keats undergoing this illness while living, living in London, his friend Brown took care of him and his uh, girlfriend, uh, Fanny Braun, would come to see him. And he said, to, he wrote to her in a letter that with what he was experiencing, he would endeavour as much as possible to be patient with his ills. And that phrase has always rather struck me, to be patient with his ills, as much as, as he says, as much as he, he is able to do. And, and it's one of those things, and I've noticed in my um, contact, particularly when I was in the East with people who are um, sick or dying, that the need for connection and communication, just as it is at the very beginning of life, through touch and affection, how we need that when we come into this world, it's in the same way as it were, actually, when we go out of the world. Even if nothing too much is said, there's something, even with human beings who are extraordinarily clear and have depth of under understanding, and I think of a number of those that I've known in the East who are in the, the monkhood, that when it came to actually the last period of time of the life in which the breath is moving towards its final closure, the need and the love and the appreciation of affection and communication and acknowledgement from other human beings makes that final stage of life and that final passage of life so much easier. Genuinely so much easier. And Keats, out of concern for uh, his uh, fr friend Fanny Braun, um, such that she would come frequently, daily in fact, though he frequently wasn't well enough to see her. And so sometimes she would leave him a note, and sometimes the note was simply two words, good night. Leave that note, leave it under his, his pillow, and as he would remark in his replies to her and in his contact with her, sometimes just those words were sufficient to help him through the long night. And this ode to a nightingale is all about this the spirit of a human being dealing with a life-death reality and working through the night with it. And then I would, I would like, if I may, to um, read you the poem, give some brief commentary on the main themes of the verses through this uh, poem, and then in um, conclusion to that, just relate to you the very last period and what is another friend of his, Joseph Seven, um, said of the last period of life of Keats, and what Keats has as his epitaph on the on his gravestone in Rome. And 
Ode to a, Ode to a Nightingale, written in uh, April of 1819. So he'd be about 23, 24 years old at this time. My heart aches, and a drowsy numbness pains my sense, as though of hemlock I had drunk, or emptied some dull opiate to the drains, one minute past, and leith wards had sunk. It is not through envy of thy happy lot, but being too happy in thine happiness, that thou, like winged dryad of the trees, in some melodious plot of beech and green and shadows numberless, sings of summer in full-throated ease. Keats, this poet, is writing of a man in hospital, in a ward, who is dying. It's in the summer, it's in the night hours, and while lying there he hears the nightingale singing. hears it through his pain. And in the next verse, O oh, for a drought of vintage that hath been cooled a long age in the deep delved earth, tasting of flora and the country green, dance and provocal song and sunburnt mirth. O oh, for a beaker full of the warm south, full of the true, the blushful hippocrene, with beaded bubbles winking at the brim and purple-stained mouth, that I might drink and leave the world unseen, and with thee fade away into the forest dim. In the second verse, he is saying very briefly, Oh, for a glass of wine, oh, for a wine which will intoxicate my mind, which will remove me from this pain this numbness and this heartache which I'm ex experiencing so that he can leave this ward, this world of pain and fade away into the forest with the nightingale. Then the, the next verse, and one which I, if I may say, I remember reading this and, um, and this particular verse and this particular poem having quite some degree of uh, impact in my personal life. And there are a number of times in the East when I was there, this is over, what, a ten-year um, peri period, and when I was in the monkhood, and how at times one would become you know, sick once through uh, rather through a rather severe snake bite on one, one occasion and wasn't quite sure what the outcome would be, another occasion through food poisoning. And in that period of time, each one, just there's a certain uncertainty, and one starts the day off, and it just seems to be a very ordinary sort of day, a nothing special day of living in the forest, living in the, living in the monastery. And then something, something happens, and that whole assumption of life, of continuity and rhythm and tomorrow, is all under doubt, and there's a fear, very human fear, which, which accompanies all of that. And in this next verse, Keats is com communicating 
the pain. And speaking and to the nightingale, he says, Fade far away, dissolve, and quite forget what thou amongst the leaves has never known, the weariness, the fever, and the fret. Here where men sit and hear each other groan, where the palsy shakes a few sad last grey hairs, where youth grows pale and spectre thin and dies, where but to think is to be full of sorrow and leaden-eyed despairs, where beauty cannot keep her lustrous eyes, or new love pine at them beyond tomorrow. With that intensity of pain which is which is there, it seems that beauty and love seems to make no inroad, seems that hard to have access to that which one loves and appreciates and cherishes in life. And then there's a sudden change taking place in the heart and in the, and in the mind of, of the poet. And Keats, in remembering this is based on his years of observation of dealing with people in enormous suffering in the hospital and in his own personal suffering, says, Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, meaning he won't touch the wine, doesn't want any substitute for reality. Away, away, for I will fly to thee, not charioted by Bacchus and his pards, but on the viewless wings of poesy, Though the dull brain perplexes and retards, already with thee tender is the night, and haply the queen moon is on her throne, clustered around by all her, st her starry phase. But here there is no light, save what from heaven is with the breezes blown, through virtuous glooms and winding mossy ways dismisses the idea of, taking, of resorting to the wine and just wants to see and acknowledge what the reality is in that night of the moon and the stars and the, and the breeze and the light which is coming through and just experience that as it is, using his... And then he goes, goes on and then he under, begins to see something more. I cannot see what flowers are at my feet nor what soft incense hangs upon the boughs, but in embalmed darkness guess each sweet wherewith this seasonable month endows, the grass, the thicket, and the fruit tree wild, white hawthorn and the pastoral eglantine, fast fading violets covered up in leaves, and mid-May's eldest child, the coming musk rose full of dewy wine, the murmurous haunt of flies on summer's eve. And he is saying in this fifth verse, I can't see this though, because it's night time. I can't see all this, the sheer wonder of all this which is in the nature. And so it's his own poetic and creative imagination which helps him to get a sense for something, even though his eyes don't have contact with that, with that wondrous world of nature which is around him. <coughs> Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death, called him soft names in many amused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. 
Now more than ever it seems rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain. While thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy, still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Now his mind turns to his own situation more, sometimes wishing for the end, wishing for, for death. Even though the nightingale continues to pour forth its soul abroad in, in such an ecstasy, which would still go on even when he had gone into the earth, become a sod. Thou was not born for death, immortal bird, no hungry generations tread thee down. The voice I hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown. Perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of Ruth when sick for home, she stood in tears amid the alien corn, the same that oftentimes has, charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. And here Keats is speaking of seeing through the, as it were, the nightingale as a kind of archetype of eternity, of immortality, of deathlessness. And though, he says, there's been generations of people have born and died, this song, this has been pouring forth and has been heard by emperor and clown and was heard by Ruth in the, in the Bible her, and will continue to be heard. And so it becomes a representative, representative of something which is sustained th throughout all the changes. <coughs> and then finally, in coming to the final verse, Keats writes, Forlorn, the very word is like a bell, to toll me back from thee to my soul self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do, deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades. Past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music. Do I wake or sleep? So while lying there, in the bed, amidst the, the pain and, and the heartache, the nightingale moves off its perch and moves through the meadows and across the stream. And the poet, in his pain, says goodbye. And in the fading away of the, the voice of the nightingale, he wonders whether it was all, was it a vision or a waking dream? The nightingale has gone, and all that it re represents. Did I see this? Or am I asleep? In September of 1820, Keats was advised, while in London, to leave London and to find a warmer climate and he took 
with his friend Joseph Seven, he took a boat, a cargo boat, from Gravesend, near a port not far from London, to Rome. And it was a very difficult journey. And that trip, what we would consider, of course, a very short trip, and that time took five weeks. They arrived, the ship went first to Naples. When they, when they arrived there in Naples, there was a quarantine on because, the, because of typhus. And so they had to spend another ten days or, or more waiting on this boat. All the time, of course, Keats is in terrible pain and, and bleeding and very weak. And from Naples, they arrived at the, at the, at, in uh, Rome and at the Spanish steppes. In this last period, there was still, amongst friends, a kind of an optimism, a hope that their friend Keats would, would survive the winter, would survive this disease and, and would prevent the collapse of his lungs. And one of them wrote t to him, and in, a and in a letter to him said such very touching words and certainly a reflection of the, poet, of the poem itself. It said, to Keats, he wrote to Keats, Thou shalt return with thy friend the nightingale. And through the winter of uh, the last period of, of Keats's uh, life, his friend Seven stayed with, stayed with him day, day in and day out. And Seven wrote of the last, of the last days, on January the 11th, this is some five, six weeks before the death of Keats. Little did I think what a task of affliction and danger I had undertaken, for I only thought of the beautiful mind of Keats, my attachment to him and his convalescence. He has now given up all thoughts, hopes or even wish for recovery. His mind is in a state of peace from the final leave he has taken of this world and all his future hopes. This has been an immense weight for him to rise from. He remains quiet and submissive under his heavy fate. For three weeks I have never left him. I have sat up all night. I have read to him nearly all day and even in the night. I light a fire, make his breakfast, and am sometimes obliged to cook, make his bed, and sweep the room. And then on February the 12th, this is about some 11 days before his death, he wrote, I have kept him alive by these means week after week. He, has refu he had refused all food, but I tried him every way. I left no excuse. Many times I have prepared his meal, six times over, and kept from him the trouble I have had doing it. I have not been able to leave him, that is, I have not dared to do it, but when he slept and then the day before his death. I have nothing to break this dreadful solitude but letters. Day after day, night after night, here I am by our poor dying friend. My spirits, my intellect and my health are breaking down. I can get no one to change with me, no one to relieve me. All run away. And here's this, again, this sense of... Um, this. <coughs> 
gesture by his close friend of staying very, very close to Keats, day in and day out, night in and night out, being a friend, being supportive to someone undergoing the, this large, last stage of the, of the living process. And it says something of, the, of, of Keats himself, of the friendship and the love which, which he inspired. And when it came to the very uh, came to the very end, and he passed, and he just passed very quietly away. He requested before his death that there would be an epitaph, a, a one sentence on his grave uh, at, the, at the Protestant uh, cemetery in Rome. And what Keats requested was very simple, a very rather a, a profound and beautiful line and expressing something of a genuine understanding. The line which is on his grave there is, Here lies one whose name was writ in water. May all beings be in touch with the poetry of life. May all beings hear the song of the nightingale. May all beings live in an integrated harmony. Let us have a three or four minute quiet period together. Some of you will be uh, familiar with the uh, translations and the collections of poetry by a very senior Dharma student from the Bay Area, Stephen Mitchell. And those of us who have a particular uh, love and affection of uh, his translation, translations, particularly of uh, Reina Maria Rilke, will uh, know the considerable amount of time that, and care and sensitivity that Stephen put into the uh, translations of Rilke's poetry. And I must say, really quite beautiful poetry. And for those who are interested in the deeper intimations of life, and particularly that unusual um, flair of spirituality and sensuality, which is a, a feature of Rilke. It does seem to me that uh, Stephen, in his translations, which he worked on for several years, really has contributed enormously to our appreciation and our understanding of uh, Rilke's poetry and his... Uh, immensely uh, insightful poet, poet. And he has put together, Stephen, uh, a collection which is called The Enlightened Heart, which is an anthology of sacred 
poetry which uh, includes Rilke and on previous occasions I have given a commentary on one or two of uh, Rilke's uh, poems. But in this uh, period with you this evening, if I may, I would like to give a commentary on one of the other pieces which Stephen has selected for this anthology, and it's a very classic and well-known piece by the bard himself, William Shakespeare, and this from The, the Tempest, and it's Prospero uh, speaking, and just incidentally, uh, with regard to this area, I don't know how it is for those of you who were educated here in the uh, United States, but certainly I can speak for myself, uh, being educated in England, which has a small uh, reputation for the range and variety of writers and poets which it has produced over the centuries. And in other areas of the arts, the creative arts, it has, has not been such a prominent voice. I'm thinking of art itself. Uh, music and other forms, but in the realms of uh, language there has some, it has uh, regarded as having excelled in that particular area of the creative arts. And it's quite remarkable how education of children and young people can actively do its level best to destroy that appreciation. And certainly for myself, going through the wretched uh, English uh, educational system throughout my teens when the poets were rammed down our throat, including Shakespeare, when we had to read and memorize things which we hated, that I actually had the thought through my uh, teens that, that poets were basically uh, mentally depressed people who had a particular uh, wish to take out their frustrations and disappointments on life on um, school children. <laughs> and that there had been a long historical conspiracy through <laughs> teachers and poets. And it was years, and I say years, until I was into my twenties uh, on, on the road that I could actually bear to uh, pick up poetry because it reminded me of school and I was very, very um, blessed in life and in so far as I uh, finished my schooling at the age of 15 and I never went back and I genuinely feel that my real education was found outside of the system and uh, not inside of it. And in poetry, which I do feel sometimes if we're going to speak of language, getting closer to the nature of things, if language gets approximately close to it, then perhaps poetry of the various forms of language can sometimes touch and those uh, responses uh, within us uh, which tell of something which is mystical, which is in beyond what is immediate and tangible. And to quite some degree, Stephen has endeavoured to bring some poetry together to help show us, not only help uplift our spirit, but 
help point out something which is not of language. And I think this piece of uh, Shakespeare is uh, something of an indication of that. And just re recently I have been uh, re reading the, uh, the sonnets of Shakespeare. And it's interesting how when one takes, for example, the sonnets and the, the variety of expressions of love, it's a, it's a whole sequence of poems, really, which is around uh, love and, and is concerned to a particular man of that period. And when one goes through the poetry, one finds, not perhaps in the totality, but a gem here, a gem there, which just touches something which is rather inexplicable, and that's the, one of the potent factors of poetry. So this, this is uh, one that um, Stephen is taking uh, from, and the last lines of it, of course, are uh, probably uh, as well known uh, here as uh, that they are uh, in England. It begins, the first uh, line, uh, it's Prospero's talking to another, another man, but I think it's a line which um, medita meditators should remember when they're sitting through the, the agonies of daily life um, on a retreat. It begins, Be cheerful, sir. <laughs> Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And, like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. And, like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. So, in this I would like to give some uh, commentary to take two or three lines at a time and explore that uh, a little with you, and in a way, hopefully, which is uh, relevant to our experiences here. The first is, be cheerful, sir, our revels now are ended. <laughs> Sometimes when we f find ourselves reflecting back over the, the sequences of our life and, and the whole range and diversity of experiences, and we sometimes find ourselves just in the moments of the sitting and the walking, and the moment of our life, from the past, will suddenly kind of take rebirth in the present moment. Something that you and I haven't thought about for years, recently, many, many years ago, and will just flash upon that moment and the event of that. And sometimes that moment which we flash upon is something which we reveled in at the time. Something which, which really gave us pleasure and satisfaction. And we experience the sensation as though it was just in the moment, just repeating itself. And there's a certain kind of delight and pleasure which arises in that spontaneous recollection of an event, of a, of a happening which takes place. And one of the poets has said of this, it's like 
when we look at our life and the whole context of it, he says, it's like, I think it's Chesterton, another poet of this century, he said, those are tremendous trifles. Lovely expression, they're tremendous trifles. And the extraordinary thing is with these tremendous trifles at life, it's that they happen without being sought for. It's another kind of event which takes place. So, th so sometimes we look at the movement of desire, Henrietta was speaking last night about this to us, we look at the movement of desire, the movement of the wanting mind, when we succeed in what we want, we gain a pleasure from it. We've worked for something, we've striven for something, we sought out, we, we secure that which was pursued, and, and pleasure arises, and it's a certain kind of sensation. But when speaking of joy in life, in the sense that I am speaking about it, that is something of a different order. It's an, insofar as the joy emerges unsought for. It's as though, and in fact we've done nothing to deserve it. We've done nothing to work for it. We've, done, we've not harnessed our, our mind or our way of life or our programming, our knowledge, our roles or whatever. It's as though all of that upon which self is known has no relevance. For the moment when we're touched by something and there's a joy. Our revels now are ended. This thought arises on retreats, doesn't it? Not allowed to, to have a little indulgence in those tremendous trifles of bygone times and bygone years. And we, we see sometimes that there's a, a hearkening for this. And sometimes we feel in the, in the austerity of the days, and there's genuine austerity here, the genuine meditative disciplines here, how much we're missing. How much we would love to touch upon those kinds of moments which have come spontaneously and we've, we've reveled in the sweetness of it. And we see, our revels now are ended. These are our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And so there, there's these experiences which take place and, they, and there's a, a formation, there's a happening which brings them together. And we haven't been, and the beauty of this is, the, the, the miracle, the wonder is, that you and I haven't been able to organize it. We can't organize the joy. We can't organize the moment of being beautifully and profoundly touched. And yet if we were to go through our life and reflect back on our life, and the most precious moments of our life, the most wonderful moments of our life, they're the moments which weren't organized. They're the moments which come of themselves in some unanticipated way. We say to ourselves, we look at our life, at the structure, am I working against joy? 
Am I actually working against it? Am I living my life as though that had no relevance for me? Just be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And so both in the event that takes place and in the recollection of these events, arise and melt. Melt. Where do they go? When we live our life, as it were, in a melting existence. Then he continues, and like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, Somebody recently reminded me of a, of a, of a story which I uh, had um, told some time, some uh, years ago, and the story uh, touched the person. And I think it's one of those which regist can register with us and melt into air for us. And this is a story... I, once I had on a retreat a younger doctor. He was in his late twenties and working in New York. And he was working in a hospital there. And being that he was in his first year as an intern, part of his responsibility was to visit the various wings and parts of the hospital. And through his walk through the corridors of the hospital, he came to one uh, end of the hospital and he walked into a room in the hospital there and, and there, in there was a woman and she was in the iron lung and he went up to her and spoke to her and the situation was that she was unable to be out of that iron lung for more than three minutes because of the very high risk and danger that the lungs would collapse and therefore her life was tied bound to this uh, iron lung. And then he looked at the chart at the end of the bed and on the chart it contained her various uh, information necessary to the, the visiting doctor of the day her name, her address, her um, date of birth, and the temperature, the chart, etc. And also on that list of information was the date of admission. And the date of admission was in 1947. And then he turned her and he said he just he just he looked at this and he was shocked by this information 
and he just blurted out to her, how do you stand it? How can you spend your life in this situation, day in and day out? And at this point it had been um, well over 30 years. And then she, she said that sometimes the, when the nurse comes to check her, on a nice day, the nurse opens the window and for a short period of time the breeze may come and blow through the window. And she says the breeze blows across her cheek. And she said, when that happens, she said, that's enough. That experience, the breeze blowing across my cheek, makes all this worthwhile. When I heard this story, I asked the the, the doctor. How was it with her in the period of time of your year? And he said, whenever he went to see her, which was regularly, he said, she was consistently cheerful, consistently good-spirited, consistently content. And, he said, and one of his great joys was to open the window. So sometimes when we look and we hear this extraordinary capacity of the human spirit, in the face of situations which for you and I can appear when we hear this so utterly intolerable, how could a person bear this? And yet this capacity to transform something and the person can speak that in that way, not just in a moment of good spirit, but out of a constant cheerfulness. And I think sometimes with ourselves, we, and I think perhaps Shakespeare here is talking about this, that sometimes we get so involved in our life in having big experiences, having big events going on in our life, that the real sweetnesses of life, the real depths of life, actually isn't in that gross world. It's somewhere else. Something much more refined and subtle. And something so refined and subtle, like that breeze and that a remarkable woman's cheek, which doesn't demand anything of the world. And Shakespeare says, and like, wonderful, the baseless fabric of this like the baseless fabric 
of this vision, which could be looked at from many ways. Perhaps baseless fabric is perhaps something to do with ourselves. And one of the things which I observe and notice in uh, working with people is in the variety of different ways we put out a message to ourselves and to each other that somehow we're not good enough. Not good enough to be touched with joy, not good enough to be in a close relationship, not good enough to succeed in our various endeavors and interests. And it's as though we are constantly endeavoring to marshal together inside of ourselves a kind of solid base of self-worth. We're kind of trying to make ourselves, through what we do, to get some kind of residue of image to ourselves that we are okay. And the way we imagine and believe this will occur for us is that we will do particular things in life and and the success in what we do will be the instrument for us to feel okay. And that once that occurs, then from that base, we'll then be ready to receive joy. To be good enough to be touched, good enough for the spontaneous occurrences. We can spend our life trying to get the residue of results for this self-affirmation. And, he says, like the baseless fabric of this vision. That, in other words, we don't need to build up and to establish with us a base. We don't need to make a fabric of being okay. We don't need to be so self-absorbed and trying to get that right before we are touched and are cheerful. The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself. Yea, all which it inherit shall dissolve. I think one of the things about the, the Buddha's teachings, in, and in some respect, it is uh, a very unusual teachings from the religious standpoint. Because the Buddha seems to revel, to use the word here of the bird, 
seems to revel in speaking about things which don't seem to be religious and ignoring those things which appear to be religious. It's an it's uncharacteristic of religion. So generally speaking, when we think of religion, we, according to a Judeo-Christian uh, upbringing, which it is for a, a number of us here, it will focus upon uh, God, it will focus perhaps upon uh, texts such as the Bible and mediators between humankind and God, prophets, uh, the Son of God. And this is a, a general expression of religion and not only found in the religions born out of the Middle East, but religions, of course, born um, in other parts of the world as well. And sometimes you and I, we have looked at that and perhaps for some have found some difficulty in relating to that, have discarded the, the language of orthodox tradition and some here also will feel and do feel very comfortable with the language. And particularly in the language of uh, G-O-D, the language of God, the responses to that language, as I say, may vary quite considerably. And sometimes one also sees with certain uh, amusement to uh, the uh, uh, odd insights which arise in that area. And one which comes to mind is a piece of graffiti which I saw in a, on the wall of, in a toilet of a London restaurant some years ago, which said, um, God um, hasn't forgotten the world, but right now he's working on less ambitious projects. And sometimes, in a kind of nutshell, these things actually say something. And in a way, they tell us, in many ways, perhaps they tell us how easily in life we can want to pin and invest all hope outside of ourselves. And to some degree, Human beings are pivot back and forth, either pinning all hope outside of ourselves, G-O-D, or a sacred book, or a particular uh, individual whom we elevate to the nth uh, degree, or we swing the other way and we pin all hope inside of ourselves. and we swing back and forth between these two kind of extremes. I wonder if there is a vision which is a baseless fabric. I wonder if there is a vision, a realization which is a baseless fabric. The cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits shall dissolve. So one of the themes of the Buddha is seeing the arising and 
falling of events to actually be have enough presence of mind, enough awarenesses in life that one doesn't understand anything about life, to let it be clear as possible that what arises passes. And it said, he said, and implied on numerous occasions, be clear about this, acknowledge this for one's own welfare and good. See this clearly, what arises that passes, what comes to be goes, what appears disappears. If nothing else in life, at least know this, understand this well. And that there's nothing, neither good nor bad, right nor wrong about this, but our forgetfulness of this, our neglect of this, easily lends itself to suffering. Think of the times in your life when there has been dissatisfactions, pain, confusion, unrest or whatever, and somewhere in the perceptions there and the experiences of that, there hasn't been enough understanding in that to acknowledge that what one inherits dissolves. What is inherited dissolves. When I was on the road, some, some uh, still on the road, in a, I suppose, in a sort of way, but when I was on the road in my uh, early 20s, I had travelled, as a, perhaps a number of you did here, hitchhiked across um, Europe and through the countries en route to India. And I'm passing al along the road, it's a world of change, and it's a world where one sees cloud-capped towers, gorgeous palaces, and solemn temples. I must add that not all temples are so uh, solemn, and, but anyway, I won't go into a tangent there. So, in, so in Pasadena, one passes through all of this. And all the wonders and uh, extraordinariness of the, the human spirit wishing to put, in a way, into concrete terms, something about the feeling about life. And sometimes when one goes in temples and in cathedrals, particularly these old Gothic cathedrals of... Uh, of Europe and in other parts of the world and you walk into the place and one might be you know, a practicing atheist one might have no belief in God no belief in religion no, no belief in anything at, at, at all one has dismissed all of that one might be incredibly secular and consumer orientated and one walks in and one is quiet that centuries of quietitude and centuries of silence seem to fill the air, and one walks rather respectfully. One is rather attentive to things. One, one is, even if one walks in there with a friend, one just doesn't seem to have any wish just to start having a chat there and in conversation and, and laughing or running or um, hanging out or having a smoke or whatever. But something in the very silence of things, in the very stillness of things, of some of these old 
temples and monasteries and cathedrals, touch one. Touch one in such a way, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, all which it inherits, shall dissolve. And it seems to have nothing to do with the building and the structure of something, though that's indicative of something, but something about silence. Something about silence. When I was on the, the road, I arrived in uh, Saranath. This is the place where the Buddha gave his first talk. He, it appears from the text and from what he um, uh, talked about, that some uh, real realization, liberating realizations took place. And I think there's an important point here which I sometimes remind people about. And, to use our... Uh, Language here, a, a profound opening, so we say, took place, uh, a realization uh, took place. And in the process of that, I think this is a very important thing here, that, and he's made it very, very clear here, and sometimes forgotten, that there can be quite dramatic religious or spiritual experiences which take place, both here, and other retreats, totally outside of the retreats, and other situations. Experiences which one puts into the general uh, category or description as being religious, uh, spiritual, or transforming, whatever. The quality of the sensation, the intensity of the sensation, is not the thing. It's not the thing, it's not that will that will fade and melt into thin air, as Shakespeare says. What is significant is the insights which emerge out of the experience. One may have a whole variety of heart-opening experiences, mind-opening experiences, whole range of different um, unfamiliar sensations taking place, or one may not but the important significance is what's the realization that occurs? What's the insight which occurs? Sometimes people will come on retreats during the course of the retreat, uh, from a previous retreat, from another time and place, unrelated, and the person will say, uh, Christopher, this happened to me, I experienced this, I had these incredible realizations, I got touched in this way, touched in in that way, you know, and is this what awakening is, is this what enlightenment is, is this what liberation is, or whatever. And my response, as you can imagine, in uh, moving in these kind of circles, which I uh, move in, and as many of you do as well, one has the immense privilege and uh, honor to listen to an incredible, remarkable range of human experiences. It's a very special privilege and situation to actually be in. And sometimes people say, Christopher, this happened to me, this happened to me. 
and some discussion and exploration of that would take place. But I also would, would always make, because of this melting into thin air, two particular points about it. One is, when something like that has happened relatively recently, then I say to a person, if there has been realization taking place, and the teachings, remember, are about realization, they can come quietly or can come with a lot of feeling, a lot of sensation, please give it one year and a day. If in the course of the cycle of things, shall we say, what a person can say to themselves with all honesty and, and clarity, something has changed and there hasn't been any, as it were, falling back into the old in the way that things had been before. There has been a change that will have in one's life a staying power to it. As is the nature of realization, it, it, there's a staying power to it. One has realized something. And, therefore I say, must give it time. One cannot draw hard and fast conclusions in a retreat or in the days immediately following a retreat. The second point, which I think is equally important, and I think the Buddha uh, has, has commented on this I'm, uh, as well, and it is sometimes there are experiences which take place, a range of experiences, and then the person moves, moves on, moves elsewhere, or whatever. And one thinks, because I've had whatever these experiences are, because this has occurred to me, that somehow all of one's life is going to be neatly and easily taken care of. And I think with experiences and the range and the insights which come, uh, as the Buddha has uh, pointed out with uh, great, wi great wisdom and understanding, is that there are the three jewels of existence. Awakening itself, the first. Second, the teachings, the Dharma, which is concerned only with awakening and everything else is uh, placed second fiddle to it. And Third is the Sangha, the gathering of like-minded people. So where there's experiences and realizations and insights, that the jewel, that third jewel of gathering the contact with like-minded people, in the subsequent period, I feel, acts as a tremendous resource. Not that one necessarily talks about the experience or explains it, because others may or may not understand, but in the silence and in the caring nature of humanity, that experience has the opportunity and the time to season and mature inside of oneself. And sometimes people have come and have said to me, because I've had this experience, whatever, whenever, whatever. And then I just, I thought everything was so much clear, and things in my life are so clear, and then have continued on and then found that they have been overwhelmed or confused or depressed or felt lost or insecure and then wondered, well, what was the validity of that experience? And it may have been valid but one lives in relationship to one doesn't live as self never could and never did
So though experiences may melt and vanish, as is said, nevertheless, insights matter. And like this, oh, thank you. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. So when events take place for us, and the event, the pageant has faded away, let's understand, let's not hold on to it. Let's not make something special of it. Even with the Buddha and his realizations that took place, it certainly wasn't him who made something special of it. It was history. It was the tradition which made something special of it. And in his 45 years of teaching about realization and about the transcendent significance of it, and in 20 volumes of what is said to be recorded texts of what he said, the references to that particular night amount to two or three times. And even then it is said it was only in the latter period of his life in a conversation with Sariputra that he gave more detail about what occurred to him on the night of his realization under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. So see, even those situations as well as in our own life, making fuss doesn't contribute to awakening and, underst and understanding and the emergence of understanding out of the forms of experience. Leave, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind, we are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. And surely the, the way of realization, the, the stuff of awakening is such that our event on the, on the stage is not of the significance in comparison, in the realization of something which is vast, which is immense. And there's this tremendous capacity of human beings to see the form of our life, the, the structure, the strategies of our life, with a, with a space which goes around it, which says, as dreams are made on, our life is rounded with a little sleep and that we have the capacity for a vision which is beyond life, our personal life, beyond our birth and death. Because all that is the stuff of dreams. Be cheerful, sir, our revels now are ended. These are our actors, as I foretold you. We're all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve. And like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep.
May all beings live in peace. May all beings live in harmony. May all beings live in peace and harmony. So let's have a minute or two together, shall we please? 